Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. All right, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum. This is the DC Local Leaders Podcast. We are back with another episode. This episode is with Mike McDermott. Mike is the president of Inquisit. That's Inquiz IT. You may have seen their logo uh, with the capital IT on the end of the word. They're based right here in Boston. And Mike just has an incredible journey from going from the United States Marine Corps as a young person uh, in his 20s to finding himself very quickly in a leadership role of other people and then carrying that forward throughout his career. He's led two other companies prior to his appointment as president at Inquisit. And he also has a number of different personal ventures that he's working on that he shares with us as well. Uh, throughout that time, he's learned a lesson of understanding that things are both and and not necessarily either or. And he has created this accountability as a culture within Inquisit. And he just gives us so much knowledge based on his experience. So I'm really excited to bring you this episode. And um, thank you so much to everyone who has rated, reviewed, subscribed and followed us on Instagram, Spotify, Apple, all of the the media outlets that we're on. And thank you so much to everyone who's reached out through email with your suggestions. Really appreciate that. We want to bring you quality content and uh, we need that feedback in order to do so. So let's uh, get right into the episode. Mike. Good, good, and I appreciate your flexibility this morning. Yeah, I know yeah. not everybody gets all the background stuff, so you showed up, and we're in the middle of our uh, furniture installation, our first day in the new building here. A little too much background noise to run a podcast, so we've already had the building manager chasing us down because we took over the conference center. Yeah, I know, <laughs> but it's been exciting and it's been fun. Uh, Mike McDermott, you are the president of Inquisit LLC. Uh, we're here today in your office in Boston, your brand new office, brand new office um, yep. as we were just talking about. And yeah, I'm excited to have you on board with another podcast here. Tell me a little bit about Inquisit. What do you guys do? I know you're GovCon, but yep. what does that mean? Yep, sure. So uh, we're an IT company within the federal space. Um, a lot of infrastructure, cyber, uh, software support. We consult with CTOs, CIOs, and on various things where they're trying to push the envelope in areas of technology and things like that. The big thing that really separates the companies, we're kind of a commercial firm that started doing government contracting work, uh, if you will. So um, you know, the, 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 there's a legacy to the firm, but really over the last couple of years in taking it over, um, the ethos of the firm is that kind of more commercial. What I mean by that is, you know, one of the things in our culture is earn your customer's business every day, you know, and that's an unusual kind of uh, ethos within the federal space where, it's one of the really unique industries where you can earn these contracts that are worth millions and millions of dollars and impact millions of people, and you carry them on for generally about five years at a time. And with that kind of market, I've seen in, in my time in the market a little bit of a complacency that kind of sets in. Uh, you feel like you have leverage in negotiation with your customer because they're not going to get rid of you, that kind of thing. 
and I really want to see, and I believe the taxpayer deserves to kind of see some of that really broken down. And for federal contractors to remember, they're spending the taxpayers' money. They impact the lives of a lot of people, which sometimes in the Beltway, people get a little bit lost. And that means when you go in and you're supporting that customer mission, you've got to earn their business every day. Yeah. How long have you been uh, a part of Inquisit and in the role that you're in? Yeah, sure. I got brought in, gosh, I think it's a little over four years ago now. Um, I had known the owners for at least a decade before that. I had worked with them, uh, and they were actually a subcontractor of mine when I was over at uh, Facile. And then they were a client of mine. <clears throat> and it was kind of a funny story coming in. At the time, I had offers from a couple of other firms to come in and start, you know, take a CEO or, you know, C-level type of position. And most of them were turnaround type of things or, or businesses that had stagnated in some way and needed a lift and, and I kind of got I love that space that that space intrigues me in addition to the startup space so <clears throat> I was sitting down with them and I, I was telling the owners you know I don't know that I'm your guy as a consultant anymore because I really want to go take something on a little bit more of a full-time role and they were a bit insulted that I hadn't come to them and told them I wanted the full-time role and I, I told them you know pretty clearly that the culture of the firm while uh, there are elements of it that were incredibly comfortable. I, 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 I fit, if you will, in with a lot of those guys really well, that there were other elements of the culture, and it was more of a lifestyle business that didn't really align with my personal goals, and it really didn't make sense. And, and of course, they went, lifestyle business? What do you mean? You know, people get very insulted by that sometimes, um, and it's, it's not a bad thing. It, it's just it's a very different way of running a company, and for different purpose. And so after a couple months of, you know, just kind of talking through what they really wanted and what that actually meant, um, it was, uh, it made sense to come on and, and we cut a deal. And uh, actually we're now just in the infant processes of executing a management buyout with the new management team buying out the owners. There's so much there. You mentioned a lot of buzzwords <laughs> that, that we love here on the DC Local Leaders Podcast. First one I heard was culture. Um, I want to get into a little bit about what the culture is actually here at Inquisit and, and how you've shaped that um, and really just dig in. Like, how did you get to where you yeah. are like, and all that? But, but what, what is a lifestyle company? Like, yeah. to, what does that mean when, so when you the, said you know, that? Yeah, general terminology is kind of lifestyle business is a business you're not necessarily looking to – um, grow rapidly and sell and, you know, have a private jet and be part owner of a football team kind of thing. Right. You're, you're you know, you, you want to be home for dinner. You want to make the kids soccer games. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also want to have ownership of something and you want to have the monetary freedom that comes with being in an ownership role without maybe going kind of what others might consider over the top. Right. And, um, you know, my, my dad is a great example. You know, he started a business at at 52 and every year he fires some customers Hmm. and he does that because in his mind they for various reasons kind of make bad customers or the money is not as good as some of the others and he wants to keep his business at at a manageable size for him and what he wants to do at his age and he's very open about it and I think that that's a very healthy way to do it and then there's another side of folks like myself who really enjoy the process of trying to create that hockey stick growth and getting into the 
merger and acquisition community and, and things like that. Yeah. So when you say lifestyle company, you, you mean specifically you can still maintain a work-life balance and have a lifestyle outside of just working all day long. Which, which if you're really looking for high financial results, that is um, not that that's impossible by any stretch, but it becomes much more vexing problem spaces. And there's a little bit more, I think, that you end up having to give up. To, to get that, that yes. monetary gain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and taking that with the culture of Inquisit, right? What is, so what would you say the culture of Inquisit is? So Inquisit, I'm going to kind of give some context because I think understanding what it's like to come into a business and then have to modify its culture is, is, a, is its own kind of animal. <clears throat> um, and what I mean by that is when you come into an organization, you're a guest even if you're hired to be the president or the CEO, you have to earn your way into the hearts of everybody in the organization, which means that you can't come in and just put your culture onto everybody. You're a guest in their house, and you've got to become part of that culture and understand that culture and what all of the important stories are to everybody and what the important things mean and then you can, once you're accepted, begin the discussion about, hey, guys, there's some really good stuff here, but there's some stuff we might want to talk about. And there's some stuff here that might be holding you back a little bit. And that's where um, you know, I focused when I came into the organization. And at one point, <clears throat> it was, you know, I, I needed a way to, to start the discussion, and I also needed a way to make everybody believe that while there were challenging changes ahead, they had it in them to make that. And so what I decided to do was sit down and write what we have today and is the Inquisitor Credo, which is to document everything. And, and there's nothing in there uh, that is abrasive within the organization. You know? So for example, being responsive, um, being available as, as a manager or a leader 24 seven to your folks and your customers. Um, you know, earning your customer's business every day, uh, being transparent and truthful even when it's really difficult. Those kind of things become really important to the institution. And the other thing is they have two other aspects. One is they begin to take away a lot of the discussions around you don't like me or this was a favored person or, or those types of things that people very naturally fall into those tendencies. The and, politics. And you go, yeah. And, and so part of the, you know, the, the, the kind of the trick to keeping them out, if you will, is if your culture is documented, it's someplace, it's, it's you know, however you choose in the organization to do that, then you can, when that stuff starts to come up, say, no, no, it's, it's not a me and you thing. We as an organization have agreed to live by this credo. And I don't think you're consistent with this piece, so let's explore that. It's not a me versus you. It's this is what I've seen in your behavior, and let's have a discussion. And it's relative to something that's outside of both of you. So it makes, it makes that uh, process a bit easier. Have you seen that received well from the employees? Like, oh, yeah. They appreciate yep, that. Yep, and, and we talk about... Um, in performance reviews and things like that, uh, you know, upholding the culture is is a major piece of it. And then uh, for the folks that really stand out and do things through the year, we have different awards and things like that at the end of the year that we do, which are really fun. Um, the other complexity about building a culture within the federal space 
specifically is really the fact that you put your people to work at other people's organizations that also have their own culture. Mm. <clears throat> um, so, you know, mm-hmm. I, I want to build my own strong culture at Inquisit that's going to yield um, a certain financial result, and it's going to yield a certain quality result, and it's going to yield a mission accomplishment result, and there's all of these different pieces. Well, that culture can't conflict with our customers, USDA, Export Import Bank, mm. and the Navy, you right. know, and they've all got their own cultures. So really understanding what some of the cornerstone things that are important across the federal space and, and not making sure that you are not in conflict with those things uh, was also part of putting that culture down. And what ends up is you kind of strip things down to, you know, kind of that bare metal, that, yeah. that, that foundation of the organization and get to really simple concepts like transparency and honesty and like working hard and, and all those kind of things that um, as simple and straightforward as they conceptually seem uh, can yield really interesting conversations, you know? So what if we ask you to work over a weekend and am I, if you decide not to, cause you have a kid's game, are you not working hard? Right. That becomes a conversation. Are those two things synonymous? And, exactly. And, you know. Exactly. So, so being able to kind of work through a lot of that stuff is important. Yeah. I think a lot of times we lose that in, in a lot of companies. And, and I don't know if it's relative to size or, or what. How many employees do you guys have? At, uh, a little over 100. Yeah. yeah so you've, 100. Got, you've got a significant number of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to maintain that culture with all of those people and, and that idea that um, – it sounds like there's a support system, and, and you're setting reasonable expectations out uh, in front, and you're, you're setting that you care about them as an individual, right? Because everything that you mentioned are great ways to just operate your life in general, right? Yeah, I think uh, business isn't unlike, you know, there's, I was an athlete. I used a lot of sports yeah, metaphors so like, I, you know, yes, a lot of guys yes. do, and, and, but it really translates into so many walks of life. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you get out what you put in and that, that sort of thing, and... Um, so how did you get involved with this type of work? You mentioned your dad was a business owner. <laughs> yeah. Like, where'd you start? Did you, you know, go to school, military? I, I, am, I, am the, I am the least qualified person in the entire firm to be working in the position I'm working. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I tell a lot of our guys that, that the reason I have to be the president of the company is really due to the fact that I'm really not qualified to do anything else. It's not really a job else. description. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a bit of a long story. So I... Um, was recruited out of high school to play soccer. And in my first semester, I, I had a pretty good injury and could not make that leap athletically, uh, especially after an injury. So I decided if I can't be a college athlete, the next best place for me was the U.S. Marine Corps. And um, I ended up uh, in the Marine Corps in a signal intelligence role primarily and then working in a couple of different jobs throughout the intel community and getting a really, really, really good base in a lot of different types of technology, um, various types of uh, collection methods and, and, and different things like that, as well as cybersecurity, you know, kind of before it was cool. Hmm. And that led me <clears throat> pretty quickly into a contracting job uh, at Titan Systems. So this is going back, you know, almost 20 years, I guess. Titan Systems at that point was going through an, an acquisition of a, a small company and I had uh, I really didn't understand what was going on, but uh, I had gotten put on this contract where the organization that had the contract for a year and a half, it was a training contract where 
they basically were setting up a classroom to train the Marines on how to integrate a lot of the tactical systems as well as keep track of a common operating picture and movement of you know enemy assets and things like that via electronic boards and so this was this was on the heels of coming up with the internet this is 2000 you know two yeah yeah that was that was hotmail time <laughs> yeah that was like, when it was you know, like really cutting edge stuff yeah you know at the time that was dial-up that was like oh then we were we were all high-speed satellite vans and what you guys you know, were oh, yeah, we were set in track 170s yeah. 85 mark 132s i worked on all those types of things there was no contract started though there was no actual classroom where they were training the marines so my, you know, boss who is in Virginia Beach comes down to Camp Lejeune to visit me and he's, oh, don't worry about it. We'll have this. We'll have that. We'll have this. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, well, why can't I do this? And so, you know, I said, I said, how about if I get you this classroom, which nobody else has been able to do for a year and a half, you promote me to the, be the program manager. And he kind of laughed at me and I, you know, it kind of got me. And so I said, okay, uh, well, let's shake on it. And I want a $5,000 raise. Like that was huge money to me yeah. at the time. And um, he shook on it, and within less than 30 days, I managed to get my hands on 22 tactical computer systems, all freshly boxed, an internet line, a router, a couple of other you know peripheral things, and a server that we could actually run a whole bunch of things off of. And I said, okay, now you can come back down from Virginia Beach and give me my raise and promote me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so he came down, and, he, he, and he, I, I could see the look on his face. It was not pride. It was, uh-oh, <laughs> it happened, you know? Yeah. So he, he, he sat me down and he said, this was valiant. Like, this is amazing. But let me explain to you the way government contracting works okay. is you're actually not qualified to be the program manager. To which at the time I'm, you know, 21, 22 years old, nobody else could do this in a year and a half. I did it. And now you're going to tell me I'm not qualified to right. do the job. I did the job. Right. It's already done. <laughs> so like, it's I called the government done. customer and I said, hey, you need to fix this. <laughs> and... That, you know, that was a big no-no, of course, as anybody knows. You know, I, I was, like I said, a little bit of an aggressive kind of dumb kid. And, um, and so I made program manager. And so now I'm this kid who's in a company that just got acquired uh, and into Titan Systems. And it was during that time that I saw the industry for, I think, a little bit of what it is, uh, which was, you know, I was in a hotel in a conference room with probably 50 white guys in their 50s and you know who all could be my dad and they all kind of dress the same they all kind of look the same they all kind of talk the same and I didn't really see anybody pushing I didn't see and I was freshly out of the Marine Corps and and they weren't talking about the things that were important to me when I was wearing a uniform on a consistent basis and then they're throwing up the numbers on the charts and I'm thinking to myself if these idiots can make that kind of money, I can get involved in this stuff and service these customers better. And I decided at that point I was going to kind of give up what at the time I thought I was going to be in federal law enforcement and said, I think I can make a bigger impact here because I can actually touch more things. So it was at that point that I, <clears throat> I started to pursue a career kind of more on the federal contracting side, but in the with the target of either owning something, running something, getting to the executive ranks of someplace. Didn't really know what the path was going to be. I just, I, I knew I needed to go someplace else and, and I, I could get higher. So I actually got recalled <laughs> very shortly after that. What year was this? Um, this was in 2000 and this would have been 2002, three time frame. Okay. So this is right in the invasion. I got recalled from right. the invasion. Got out, uh, did a year of active duty. Mm -hmm. um, got out again. Worked for... Um, 
for NSA via CSC, and I got picked up to be one of the lead forensic uh, cyber investigators for the blackout investigation of 2002. Mm. Um, and so, again, this was when cybersecurity wasn't what it is today. You know, and, and guys, at that point, I was one of the very unique, skilled people who, you know, I had been through networking school. I had I had an MCSE. I had done a lot of Unix uh, administration. I could program in Perl and C Sharp and um, you know, I could do a lot of these things and I could get myself around a system and I could kind of figure out what was going on in there. <clears throat> but so I got picked up and I spent a couple months on that, that project. And again, that was really, really, really cool. But during that same time frame, I had been uh, pursued by SEALs, owners, who had actually turned me down uh, for my first job there. And so in the process of uh, going into a final interview and, and sitting there in a final interview of which I was a half an hour late mm. to the interview. Were you like, so, so talk to me about your, your, your headspace and your, and your self-talk <laughs> on the way there. Cause you knew you were late and, and I know. Oh, and I was, and, and I'm not, you know, I, I was not at the, at that point in my life, anywhere close to where I am now, you know, relative to being able to kind of understand, you know, your, yourself in all honesty. Uh, and so I was just a <laughs> running through the Crystal City underground, mm. trying to find the, the hotel we were meeting at, which turns out wasn't even connected to the underground. Um, just, you know, nervous, sweaty, you know, angry. I couldn't find it. So so I finally get to the hotel. Uh, they're meeting in the lobby. They're pretty understanding about me being late. I figure these guys are going to give me like 20 minutes and shoot me out of this place. There's no way I'm getting this job. Um, so we finished with the interview and and. Uh, the guy who is the CEO ended up working with very closely for the next 12 years, almost 12 years. Uh, he said, well, do you have any questions for me? And I said, yeah, I do. I said, if I come in to your organization, uh, I'd like to do sales. And he goes, okay. And I said, and if I make you enough money, I want you to capitalize a business for me down the road. And he just kind of looks at me like, we just met. <laughs> yeah, which is crazy, right? But but also, where did you get that idea? Like, did you had you seen that before? Question. Did you? Because I don't know that if if I were in that position, especially at that age, I don't know that I would think like that. Right? You know, like, I, how it, did it's, you? Yeah, that's a good question. So I had <clears throat> I had um, prior to taking this interview and and you know kind of during the job search time frame and coming back off active duty, I actually had called Titan. And they, uh, I said, hey, what I would like to do is come in and do, you know, proposals and sales and, like, learn that side of the business because, quite frankly, I want to know that I can do that because if I'm going to run a business, I want to be able to do that in order to make sure that the business would sustain. I mean, it was, it was critically clear to me that if you couldn't sell, you were never going to run a business successfully. And, and so that was, you know, that just, that one I, that one I knew. <laughs> And they turned me down. They said, no, sorry, you don't have a college degree. You don't qualify for any of our positions internally. So you're a tech guy. Congratulations. Then when I went over to CFC, despite being the guy that actually won the proposal, and I wrote a lot of that proposal that ended up winning, right. uh, it was the same thing. You know, you don't have a degree. Yada, yada. So after having those experiences in very large firms and, and kind of starting to become much more aware of the bureaucracy and the alphanumeric designation that identifies you in the organization – I, I started to decide, okay, this really isn't my cup of tea. I, I, I like to be small. I like to lead people. So, um, so I knew I needed to probably go start something on my own. That was, it was either, to me, that, that, those were the two worlds that existed. It was either go work for a big company you can retire from or go start something on your own. 
I was completely unaware of everything that existed in the middle. Right. Okay. <laughs> and so, um, so that's, that's where that came from. Right? And okay. So you'd been told no enough times to where you realized, look, I'm going to have to do this on my own. Yep. And, and uh, that looked like a good alternative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great, man. I, just hearing that story. And so, so from there that you obviously got that did it work out? So it, so here's it's funny. So it did. Um, and uh, they were extremely gracious to myself and another VP at the time of the company who um, went out and, and started another firm and uh, actually consulted back. I consulted back mostly on obviously the sales side. So I was essentially almost full, you know, full time type of work and then had some uh, contracts, mostly with Defense Logistics Agency and had just uh, had picked up a couple FTEs in security at NSA. And so shortly after doing that, they actually asked me to come back and run the firm. Uh, we had done pretty well. They wanted to team me up with another guy in the company who is a longtime friend of the CEO, who is Tom Shoemaker. And, and, uh, and we ran that firm from 2009 to 2014. Average Kager was 37% over those years. We took the business from, gosh, we took it over roughly $40 million when I left the company, we had closed at $148 million. Wow. Almost $100 million more. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and in a relatively short time. I mean, what is that? Yeah, relatively short time. High EBITDA. Um, did really well within the GWACs. Uh, and, and, it was, and what's GWACs? The government-wide acquisition contract. So basically, uh, the way that the government is really running the IT side now is the companies that are going to make the money are on the big contracts. Hence, that's why they spend so much time in court when they lose. Right. Right. So yeah, and that and that led you to to Inquisit. Yep, exactly. You know, DC local leaders were all about mindset, leadership, the individual personal growth, the journey, the the spiritual growth if it's there. I just I hear this message that you learned so much along the way and you've been able to apply that every step of the way and it sounds like, you know, your experience of of being told no and then having to create a way of your own um you know, you learned a lot about the human condition, probably your own human condition, right, during that? Oh, yeah, big like, time. I mean, I, you, I mean, I was an executive or at a kind of an executive level in my mid to late 20s. One of the things people ask is, you know, what would you tell yourself? And, and I don't know that I would really tell myself anything because as much as I would have been a better leader if I slowed down and I asked more questions and I, you know, was more self-aware and things like that, I don't know that if I had all of that, that I would have had the right experiences to build me where I am today. And I think that the reality is you might give yourself some really fantastic advice of where you are today, but it doesn't mean you don't introduce yourself to new problems then. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, but I was, I, I'm, I'm sure I was a nightmare at times to work with, as you know, as I still can be, but, but much more <laughs> frequently. I, I believe that too. Like, I don't know that I would change. I, I can look backwards and say, I wish this were different sure. sometimes, but I don't know that I would be in the position that I'm in now had everything that did happen not happen. And, and, I, and I think the reality is, you know, you learn your lessons the best when you skin mm-hmm. the knees, you know, when, when you, you, know, right. you literally have that skin in the game. It, it, you, you cannot. Um, you know, oh, is that I where think, that came? Is that where that comes from? I don't think that's where it comes from. Oh, but it, it like made, skin in the game. It, it made sense. Your, yeah, I was like, oh my god. You know, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got four daughters, and uh, it's it's really interesting to kind of choose when you give them some level of advice, and when you kind of have to just ask questions, and when you just kind of have to go. All right, this is going to hurt. I'll be there on the other side, but they have to, they've got to feel the pain to learn the lesson. 
Yeah, I mean, I was in a conversation with another guest, and we were talking about how we learn from our failures, uh, probably more so than our successes, because, you know, a lot of times we don't even acknowledge the success, or it's just part of what we do, and we're not saying that we were successful. Maybe it's different in a business, right? Because if you win a contract, you probably do go back and say, all right, well, what worked well, and what can we replicate? I, I would think, right? And and But the exercise probably is always more valuable when you don't win that contract, right? Because then you, over time you can see patterns. Well, we're not doing this, hopefully. Yeah, and, and actually it's funny. In, in, our, in our particular line of work, you really have to do that on your own. Uh, you don't get a lot of feedback from the government. Yeah. You really have to look for those patterns. Uh, and, and, you know, what somebody might look at kind of a sabermetric approach, right? So, you know, how do we take all of the elements of what we do in a sales process or an ops process or anything and kind of break it down so we can begin to quantify things and then we can actually study some and measure some impact yeah and, and then even you know going back to your daughters and, and just anyone listening and and just people in general right i'm a big human condition person right that's just i, I love that the mindset i mean that's where that's what brought me here to, to hosting this podcast and stuff like that we don't have failures we have lessons mm-hmm. right and, and I, just the older I get, the more of a believer I, I am on that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know. Everything that's happened has led me here. Like, why would I change it? That yeah, and there's, as, as, as you, I think the other thing that happens is as you get older, you see the complexity of things a lot clearly, yeah. clearer. And one of the things I'm, I'm very interested in studying right now and actually taking a course over at George Mason is polarity thinking mm-hmm. and, and kind of the fact that things are more of a both and than they are in either or. Right. And, and that's kind of the way life works. And I, my girlfriend's son, who, you know, I'm, I'm dad to him too. And he, uh, I was driving around yesterday and he says, you know, hey, Mike, what is a, uh, what's a faster, a motorcycle or a car? And, and it's, you know, such a simple question from a five-year-old kid. And it's like, well, I mean, typically yeah. <laughs> it would be a motorcycle, but it was a racing car, you know. And so you, you know, you begin to see the layers yeah. of things that, you know, as you get older, like six years, like well, just, it's a simple like which is faster, just one or the other, you know. And, right. And uh, as an adult, and you start to live a lot more life, you start to you know you read a lot more, you see um, the way things are put together, and you see everything in a much more gray than black and white. Right. Everything has layers. Yep. More of an onion, and and especially when you're dealing with another person, right? I mean, I think when someone comes to work, or you just even not even in work, right? You run into the person and they're angry about something. Well, that that's landing on you, but it's not because of you, right? I, I was very selfish in my approach to other people where I thought it was about me, like they were doing that to me. They were doing that, and I happened to be standing there. Right. They right. weren't that reaction probably had nothing to do with me. That reaction had to do with probably 15 other things that's going on in their life because they're a complex person. Right. Right. So we all are. Right. It's not, you know, and being able to to step back and, and have that pause and that thought, I think, is is a huge thing for any leader. Right. Or just any person in, in, when you're working in a person to person business because you're doing business to business sales. Yeah. But you're doing it with people. Exactly. And I I. In addition to Inquisit, um, I have an executive coaching firm, yeah. and then I, I'm launching another startup in, in January. And You're um, just doing it, trying. <laughs> the, the 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 biggest thing that the coaching you know taught me, um, and I, it's one of my favorite things to do, is really just to ask a lot of questions and, and understand. And and because to your point, you know, like you said, people are complex and they have a lot of their own stuff, and and what people. I find tend to actually need is not somebody to guide them, not somebody to tutor them. So but it's really to just kind of ask a lot of questions and help them think through their own answers, because there is no way 
that, you know, as, as, as good as I might be as, an, as a person in understanding others, I can't totally put my feet in their shoes. Yeah. And they're always going to have a better answer because they've got all of the context. The best thing that you can do is just help them open their eyes to it and, you know, take the aperture and expand it. You know, asking questions. There's a, there's a book, Negotiate Like Your Life Depends yep. on It, right? And, and in there, Never Split the Difference. That was the name of it. I was trying to remember. You know, he talks about asking the, like asking how, right, and using that as an opportunity. He's talking about negotiations, and his level of negotiations are life and death. I mean, that's what he was talking about. Um, you know, this could be, you know, your daughter's asking you, can you, can I go out with my friends this weekend? And you can ask her, well, well how would you do that if, you know, and then insert whatever. Right. You're not saying no. You're just asking her to come up with a, an explanation. And right. when they work it around, they're like, well, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't do that this weekend. Maybe that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so what else are you reading? You said you read that book? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm actually a pretty avid reader. So, yeah. you know, in the morning routine as I get up and I do my cardio, um, I actually I read the Wall Street Journal every morning. I'm, I'm reading right now a book, um, Tough Journey. It's from Pearl Harbor to Reagan and mostly a study on globalism, which is kind of one of the things I've gotten into as of recent. Stephen Ambrose wrote another book on uh, on globalism that's really good. What's, his, what's the name <laughs> of that one? Um, I it's globalism, and then it's got a subtitle, which is totally escaping me right now. But it's, okay. it's 1936 to just about present time, okay. uh, and, and you know, the whole thing behind kind of where the country's economy is today, and what the history is that you know the big increase, the post World War II components, then going into international, that speeding up through you know the Reagan years and, and right. everything else is very interesting. But uh, no, the favorite, yes, yeah, the favorite. <clears throat> That's. Um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell is probably one of my favorite authors. Yeah. And uh, David and Goliath is a book that I've had the last two management teams I've run um, actually read uh, for, for various reasons. But and, and the company that we're launching in uh, January is actually called Sling Partners, uh, quasi named after the David and Goliath using the sling. Um, and, and really the underlying component of that book that I enjoy is that <clears throat> there are weak people can appear having weaknesses but the reality is there is another side to that um that makes them incredibly strong and it's really understanding that and that you know that that perception of the weakness will get you if yeah. you're not careful and and you know obviously david goliath you know he swung the sling and you know hit him in the head and that that story's it's got a biblical version and a historical version but you know some of the other things in the book are you know the 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 guy who worked with uh, chemotherapy you know he lived through huge amounts of carnage during i think it was world war 1 and it gave him essentially the stomach to work with cancer patients under the various uh, chemical cocktails that they were giving them and all of the side effects mm. that that had, which get a little gruesome in the book. But even though, you know, these horrible things were happening, this guy's really unfortunate background of growing up in an absolutely war-torn city made it so that he could ultimately develop something that saved thousands, if not millions of people's lives. You know, mm -hmm. and, and so <clears throat> there's a, it's a series of stories like that where, you know, some of the other stuff talks about dyslexia and executives, you know, and the fact that you actually become really good at delegating and understanding people because you're absent of the ability to always sit in that more uh you know confined environment and read mm. so it's it's a lot of neat things like that that i think is <clears throat> really when you think about it and you apply it to a larger set um you really have to look at where people are are strong you talk about mindset things like 
you know, fixed versus growth. Yeah. I think that there are elements of a growth mindset like, you know, I can be good at anything versus, you know, I'm not good at everything. I think there, there's a little bit of a middle ground on some of that stuff. Have you read Carol Dweck? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, I think so. So I'll take myself, for example. You know, I, I am quick to make decisions. You know, I know that I am not always into the details. I, you know, those, those kind of things. Um, <clears throat> the fact that I now know who more appropriate people are to put around me. You know, um, I have uh, my two business partners now, Megan and Madeline, are really incredible. And, and what they do is we as a team balance each other out. You know, uh, Madeline's got a background as an attorney. So her nature is to be a bit more understanding and cautious, you know, and, and it's things like that that balance out the crazy guy who might make too quick of a decision. Right. And, and those are really powerful things when you put those together. And I think that that's um, not that I, well, I, look, honestly, I'm not sure that I can ever be as good as she is about being kind of cautious or thinking through in totality. Could I get better at it? Yes, that's the, that's the growth that's mindset. Right. But I also have to be realistic, which is that's such a natural asset to her why would I bang my head against the wall to grow maybe 10% in something that she's already got as a hundred? Yeah. Well, you're, you, I mean, you're saying that, yeah, because you're talking about how you structured a team that balances itself based on individual strengths, right? Yes. I, I look at it. Like if, if she, every time she steps to the plate, she's hitting at least a triple and has some home runs. And, and in that area, I'm striking out. I can start hitting to first base, mm-hmm. but if she's hitting triples every time. Yeah. Why, why would you do that? Right. I, mean, I could do it for myself. It doesn't mean that you're not uh, good at bat because right. you can get on base. Right. And you used to not be able to get on base, and now you can. So you've made, in that example, 100% right. increase. Uh, but for the unit, for the entire business, for the overall step back I, from the I still the have elephant. to recognize its, yeah. its relativity in the organization. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me about that morning routine. You wake up at the same time every day? Or yeah, like wake, up, wake up around 5, 5.30. Okay. Um, have a cup of coffee and lemon water and straight off to the gym. Okay. Um, I'm doing 40 minutes of cardio, which is too much for an off-season bodybuilder. But and during that time, I, I just I read. I read the book uh, on my uh, you know on the Kindle app. Uh, do, do you yeah. read on a? You said Kindle. Is it the audio book or are you actually scroll? No, no, I scroll through. Okay. Yep, yep. In the morning before I head to the gym, I try to take a minute. I do a um, like a uh, just a small drink, a gratitude journal. Yeah, because I wanted to get to that. I do Do find that therapeutic. Uh, I'm not a big – I've really wanted to get into some degree of be able to sit and meditate and things like that, and I have – I've not gotten to that point. Yeah, yeah, no, that's – I'm huge on that. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you, like, do you do a journal, gratitude list? You know, I'm I'm real big on on I am statements. Mm -hmm. Uh, A couple years ago, I realized just how powerful those words are uh, in the English language. I I, I never even thought about that. And I would say things like I am and then insert some pretty negative things. I can – especially, you know, you working out, I can say I'm a fat piece of – like whatever. And and all these things, right? And, And in my mind, I think, oh, I don't really mean it. You know, or I'm only talking to myself, but that's the most important person. Yeah, that we we are horrible to ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> Generally, it's self-talk. People. And, and you know, and then that it does come out with other people. When, when I meet someone who's overly critical, I almost want to reach out to that person even more. When they're overly critical of other people, because I can only imagine what they're saying to In themselves. Their own yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so your gratitude journal. Um, 
how, how many things you're jotting down? I mean, how crazy do you get with it? I, I've got, you know, three things I'm grateful for, three things that I, you know, want to accomplish for the day, and then usually a, a statement up front, and then... Uh, like an I am statement, or mm-hmm. like a, yep, an affirmation an kind of thing? Yeah, exactly, an affirmation. Yeah. And then uh, in the evening, it's kind of, you know, the same thing, what, what happened during the day. So you take inventory. Yeah, that's awesome. How did you... Where did that come about in your life? Like, where did you learn how to do that? Yeah, so going back to 2009, one of the, well, it was probably conditions, but, but it, it didn't come out that way, uh, was that I get an executive coach. I mean, okay. at that point in, in my life, I was, gosh, I don't know, you know, 30 some odd years old and, you know, really had a lot of sharp edges still. Uh, as much as I had a lot of, you know, kind of natural leadership tendency and the ability to sell and had done you know well in the company and, and deserved and your it. military experience and, and, and military absolutely but um, you know the, and, and I had taken leadership courses and, and things like that but there was there was still a sharpness to me um, probably more related to my own insecurities than anything you know I was working with a guy who's a Harvard MBA another guy's a college professor another guy's at a you know Bell Labs and, and me and it was like you know so so I had to find my edge someplace and and uh, I spent a lot of time so, um, Steve Gladys over at George Mason has been my executive coach for years, and he is amazing on many, many levels. But uh, one of the things that he introduced me to pretty quickly was, you know, the, the gratitude journal and, and some of that kind of stuff. And so I've been doing it for, for years, and it, and it helps. And actually now they've got, you know, it's an app on the phone. It takes, you know, it's yeah. a matter of minutes. But the, really the, bi- the big thing, I think, for people is finding a time during the day to just slow down for yourself and start to think about what you have planned, whatever it is, the, the big thing is you're thinking about it in a positive way. Yeah. And, and that's what I think a lot of people miss, especially with a lot of social media and, and stuff like that is, is that's the first thing that, that people want to pop into. And instead of popping into a, a, a somewhat you know, a positive space or just, you know, just kind of slow down and say, okay, what do I have coming up? Um, we jump into a very polarized atmosphere and yeah. that begins to drive things the wrong direction right from the beginning. Yeah. So do you, do you purposely refrain from any kind of like electronic avi- uh, device outside of your Kindle? No, but I don't carry a lot of apps. I don't, I don't have Amazon on my phone. I don't have Facebook. I don't have Instagram. I don't have any of that stuff. I've LinkedIn, but all the alarms are turned off. Yeah. Um, I, I try to monitor it that way so I can kind of control my time without you know, right. losing complete care. connectivity. Exactly. Yeah, you're not going back and forth. Exactly. And, and with kids, that was a tough decision because um, you can, you know, you can use a lot of the social media to kind of watch the kids or see what they're into or see uh-huh. a new friend that pops up and, and a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and deciding not to do that was, was a big decision. And uh, it was funny. I actually talked to my kids about it and I said, you know, I'm doing this and, you know, it's largely for me. But I think what the big thing that you guys got to realize is, that even if I was sitting there monitoring you guys, it really wouldn't ultimately build you into the kind of person I want you to be. I want you to be the kind of person that doesn't need to be watched to do the right thing. And that's the ultimate trust. Like, how have you seen your habits, your routines, your your mindset, your ability to lead this company? How do you see that impacting your kids now? And, and, and are you actively trying to coach them or think oh, yeah. about them and things yeah, like I that? Think, or, or? I think I annoy the hell out of them. Because How old I, are they? Uh, so my oldest is 21. My youngest is 10. And <laughs> my oldest actually said to me, she goes, Dad, you're, you're, I love talking to you, but you're really annoying. And I was like, okay, well, what, what makes me annoying? And she goes, well, you never give me an answer. 
I do that on purpose. You know that? She's like, yeah, I wish you wouldn't. Just tell me what to do. And I was like, well, that's, that's not life, you know? Um, and I, I, I probably treat the kids a little more like clients at times yeah, yeah. Than, I, than I probably should. But, um, yeah, I, I think that coming up and maturing through the executive ranks um, and having some things happen in, in the middle there that were pretty tough and you learn a lot about yourself – uh, definitely impacts the way in which you raise your kids because you, for me, um, I've done two things. I've realized on one hand that they have to have their own set of really good and probably really terrible experiences to turn into the people that they'll be. Um, and my role past like middle school <laughs> is really just to kind of be able to guide and coach. And it's the, the, the ethics, um, whether you're, you know, religious or it's just, you know, the, the, the kind of person they're going to be and, and the, the foundation of what you want to give them as people is really done at a much younger age. So, and then uh, it, do you take that same approach in a general way with the employees in the, in the company like that you allow that? I mean, like, <laughs> um, I, I think it varies. I, there's probably three types of employees relative to the way that I would coach them. There's, um, an employee composition that you know kind of needs to have clarity of guidance and not really looking to be coached as much as they kind of need to clearly know what's expected Just tell me what and what do. they need to do right yeah. um you have a group of employees who are beginning to stretch their way out of that um so i had an employee come up yesterday i had you know started to send around <clears throat> a bunch of things that are just coming up for the business that we're going to have to be accountable for and i sent an email to a couple of folks. I said, hey, I want you guys to be aware of this because it's coming down the road. And, da, da, da. and you know, the, the, the response back was, just tell me what I need to do. You know, and I went and I, I chat with her supervisor and said, that's a great answer for a year ago. It's an okay answer for today, but it's not the answer for tomorrow. Because if this person wants to have a career where they're in charge of people and they're guiding and they're doing all those kind of things, um, the, the, the answer of just tell me what to do isn't an adequate answer. You've got to start to transition into something else. You've got to start to transition into that person that's asking the questions and doing the leading and, and things like that. And then you've got a group of employees who are more, you know, <laughs> generally your upper echelons, right? Senior managers, executives, VPs, other people in the C-suite who they're doing those things and you kind of have to figure out ways to coach each other and call each other out on, on things they're doing. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like employees, they go through this life cycle. They touch each one of those where they, they they're in the stage where they need to be told what to do. They then graduate. <laughs> they, they, to, I'll put it this way. They all can. Well, that um, goes back to that fixed, fixed mindset, growth mindset kind of thing, right? This, this, you know, I, I hear just, you have this all around sense of mentorship and an ability to communicate with people and, um, sounds like you've been developing that over over time. Your your executive coach is that where you're getting most of that, or do you have a separate mentor? I've had many along the way. You know, one of my biggest mentors was probably Sasha at, at Vasil, and it's funny because just life changes. You know, I, and he's a guy who, you know, the time that we had together, I learned a ton. And I've had a couple of people um, like him, like Steve, in my life at various times who you know, gave me some tools that I really needed to add to the toolbox at that point in my life. Um, And I think the biggest thing from a mentorship perspective um, is to really 
listen to the folks that tell you what you probably don't want to hear, but you kind of know you need to. Um, and when I see, you know, some of the kids, and, and I, I see this with my oldest daughter, um, it's really nice to have somebody that says you're fantastic. And that certainly needs to be part of the conversation. But the whole reason that you have a, a mentor, not the whole reason, but a lot of the reason you have a mentor, is so that you have somebody who can help you pump the brakes, for example, when you're young. Mm-hmm. Uh, or help you, you know, shore something up that's a weak point. Say, you know, you've, you know, introduce you, for example, to the concept of EQ, which is not something that is ever really discussed or talked about or understood until all of a sudden you're in charge of people and people are trying to tell you about it and you're going, what the hell is this? Nobody said anything about yeah. this emotional stuff before. <laughs> I think I was, I was almost 30 by the time I, I even learned that it was a thing. Oh, even- I, I was, yeah, I was probably well over that. And, um, you know, and as I said, I was, I was much more abrasive when I was younger. I was just kind of going, I'm supposed to, like, cry at work. And, you know, I'm, we're watching, you know, Brene Brown and Vulnerability. Yeah. And I'm going, what is this crap? Are you a fan you know, of Brene Brown? But I, I really, I, I get it now. It took me a little yeah. while. But I, I really, truly, you know, understand. I, I you know, I, I open some of my first management meetings with uh, uh, somebody, everybody telling a story like nice. that. Because I, I just... I with vulnerability, we, yeah, like tell me yeah. something that you're vulnerable yeah. about. And, and I start the story and, and, you know, but one of the management meetings I was in, I, I, <clears throat> I was saying I, I went through, I lost my mom, got divorced and got fired all within six months and ended up in a lawsuit with these guys I'm talking about that I was, you know, that I love, that I work so close. You know, I was at, a, at, a, at one of these management meetings and all of a sudden I was like, God damn, I'm going to cry. Like it, it took, you know, everything to hold it back. But, but honestly, I think that that was probably one of the, better meetings because everybody looked at me was like if he's willing to do that like we could do we could say anything now you know that kind of thing and it was so it was a very you know eye-opening experience for everybody to kind of go geez like yeah we've all had crappy stuff happen we've all had this you know stuff happen and, and you learn stuff about everybody in the room you go, oh my god you know that's you know you're amazing i had no idea that happened you're an actual person right? <laughs> yeah it yeah you get to know each other on a whole yeah. different level which is which is really important. People don't understand, and, and I think in business especially, um, undervalue connection. You know, there's a really, really, really good, um, I think, 80-year study now at a Harvard. If you Google 80-year study Harvard Yeah, you were telling me that. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's great. There's a TED Talk that goes with it, and it talks about um, really the, the number one uh, thing that affects your health is actually your, your human connection. Um, and if you look at statistics around why people stay at jobs and leave jobs, it's basically two things. It's your boss and how you're connected to the people around you. Um, having friends at work mm-hmm. is a good thing. And, and you know, I'm, I'm 43, and, and I grew up with a lot of people telling me, you know, it's not business. It's not, or it's, it's, it's not personal. It's just business. And, you know. I see that in movies a lot. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're kind of conditioned to think that. But honestly, you know, I've talked about. You know, one of the books I write, I want it to be, I want to title it. It's, you know, it's not personal, it's just business. That's bullshit. <laughs> because it is, you know, and, and, and those connections, understanding who Madeline and Megan are as people so that they can compliment me in some of my weakest areas is, is you've got to know people to make those kind of decisions. And then you've got to know people when you're making decisions that affect the, the insurance that's going to go to 100 people, the, yeah. the move that's going to be made at you know, Exum that's going to directly affect people financing businesses for overseas trades. I mean, these are important things, and you really, you got to know each other to make the right calls. Yeah, it's both and. It's It's personal and business. Absolutely. 
Yeah, that's awesome. You know, one thing you mentioned before, right, was when you were talking about, you know, in the example that you, you, you had where there was an employee that was sort of underperforming or they, they, their response to a directive or a question was, was fine for a year ago, but not where they are. You actually had that discussion with their supervisor. So I think you accomplished two things in that, right? You you then coached up their supervisor on how to go about coaching that mm-hmm. individual and then allowed that person to have that interaction with them. So they got another repetition, another experience. Which also sends a message of trust. Um, and that's, that's something that, that gets overlooked in some of those interactions. Uh, it's very easy to go to the person and in especially flat, more entrepreneurial businesses, um, you can very accidentally step on toes mm, when and, there's not that many people. And, yep. Yeah. Yep. But I, you know, kind of remembering, and, and again, it's, it's understanding people. Um, you know, this is one of Madeline's folks and, and I, Madeline is a really great example of, uh, you know, like Jocko willing that extreme ownership. I mean, she really Oops. owns what she does. And, and so, you know, if, if I were to have gone to that person, it would have, been a message to Madeline, which is, you know, I feel I'm going to do this better than you. That's if she would have read that. I know that about her. And, and so that would have been completely unfair and, and would have sent entirely the wrong message. So, you know, talking to um, when, when you're working with especially executives that really you want them to own their section, you want them to have that, you have to also respect that. So, so to that, anyone listening, right, that, that is maybe in a technical position or let's say that they're graduating from school and they're looking at, they're listening to this and they're hearing your career um, and they want to make a jump, they want to make a shift either from a technical position or whatever they're doing now into a leadership role, what advice can you give them? Yeah, um, the big thing is self-awareness. I think when you, re- when you start to learn about yourself, then you also start to learn about others in the process because you start to see oh, yeah, that person has that thing I'm missing, or, or, or whatever. When you're a leader, when you are in charge of an organization, in charge of a section, you're on stage. Everybody is looking at, at what you do. They're taking cues from the way that you do them. If, if you're that newly promoted person, uh, they're going to go, oh, well, that's, that's how I need to be to get promoted. Or if you're the CEO, they go, okay, that's the behavior that I need to emulate to get ahead in this organization. Um, and you've got to be, I think, very aware of yourself and how you present to others mm-hmm. in order to really then understand other people as well as really keep it in your back of your mind. Like, I am on stage. These folks are looking at me for cues on how they should behave. And so I need to understand that. Right. You may be the only example of a leader they meet that day. So, yeah, easily. So, you know, act accordingly kind of thing. Yeah, there's a great saying, which is, you know, the uh, culture of an organization is built on the CEO's worst behavior. Mm. And that's, you know, it's really something you got to remember. Um, I ask everyone this, right? So what are some of the things or what do you want? future Mike to be proud of current Mike doing right <laughs> like what's he what's he working on and it doesn't have to be business related right it could no, be I, I just, the, fir- the first thing is, is all my kids turn out to be really good people well-adjusted adults that's number one you know for me um, I, I would like to see uh, financial success you know obviously you it's know, helpful and, I've, I've heard well that it's it's, it it's one handy. of those things it's honestly and it's one of those things that you know, if, if somebody wants to be rich, we almost look down on them. Yeah. And it's, you know, well, how could you want money? And, and I, so honestly, it took me a little while to come to terms with, yeah, I, I like 
the process of making money. I enjoy the competitive nature of comparing what I've done to others. I, mm -hmm. you know, and, and all that kind of things. And those are certain things that others look down upon. I go, that's okay. That's me. You know, that, that's, yeah. you know, that's a part of kind of who I am. Um, you, you know, do you think that comes from playing sports as a younger, as like, you know, that competitive nature? And oh, that, I'm extremely competitive. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're in bodybuilding competitions. You're not just doing working out. You're like working out to compare yourself. Yes. To people yes. And work out yes. Yes. And I, I, you know, was competing in CrossFit for a little before this. I had, yeah, and actually I would say you know, bodybuilding is funny you bring that up. I, I really want to have that pro bodybuilding yeah. card. That's a big accomplishment. And I could talk to you all day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love this conversation. I think we have a lot in common. I had so many more questions for you, but. Look, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Um, you know, thanks for being here. Thanks for making the time. You're in the middle of your move. Yeah. Uh, this has been great. I look forward to having you back on. Love thanks it. for here. listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders, on Instagram at DC Local Leaders, or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you're a business leader and have questions on your lease and how it impacts your business's opportunities to grow or have questions about the market, you can reach Philip directly at philip.nathram at transwestern.com. He'd love to speak with you. Until next time.